0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected. Stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, a very warm welcome to Scorebox this Thursday morning with Juliana Tadelbaum and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. Well, 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 the Bank of Canada surprising the market, restarting its rate-hiking campaign and becoming the second global central bank after, of course, the RBA to take a hawkish turn ahead of the Fed meeting next week. Well, despite that, the signs of a soft landing, well, are they there? U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen strikes an optimistic tone, telling CNBC exclusively a strong jobs market won't stand in the way of bringing inflation back down to target.
1: I see a path to bringing down inflation while maintaining a strong labor market. And I think the data we've seen recently and over the last year suggest We're on the path with those characteristics.
2: Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong hits back, slamming the SEC's move to ring fence the crypto industry and hitting out at claims the case against Coinbase is anything like Binance.
0: The companies could really not be more different and the suits could not be more different. We met with the SEC 30 times in the last year. They never gave us a single piece of feedback about what we could be doing better. We just got silenced.
2: UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak prepares to meet with President Biden at the White House, kicking off a two-day trip to Washington while seeking to shrug off trade tensions between the two sides. And Volvo Cars unveils its premium all-electric SUV, powering ahead with plans for half its global products to be fully electric by thir- 2030. The CEO Jim Rowan tells CNBC supply chain issues are working their way through the system.
0: We'll still see a little bit of disturbances within the supply chain driven by some, you know, some shortages here and there. But if I compare that to some of the turbulence that we saw in 2022, it will be much less. Uh, A very warm welcome to the show. We were just comparing notes on what that Volvo looks like. What do they, they come a long way from being a mum's car. Is that what you just said?
2: (laughs) What well, they are known to be really safe, so they are my, my safe, perception yeah. is that a lot of mothers have chosen them in the past.
0: Uh, and for all the right reasons, I'm sure. How are you? Good morning. I'm, welcome I'm to the I'm great.
2: Orders. Thanks for well, having me. You're
0: very welcome. It wasn't my decision, but you're very welcome anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it was after that, or on my own for three hours, and I really am in no state to do it at my own for three hours. But uh, anyway, thank you for joining me. Uh, we've got lots to discuss, including, well, is it a bombshell? Let's discuss. The Bank of Canada has surprised markets by hiking rates to a 22-year high, having been on pause since January. Think about that. We're back up to highs on interest rates. We haven't raised since January. Any, any thoughts about that in terms of south of the border? In the states Well, let's have a think about it. Anyway, they haven't raised since January. Uh, They've raised, though, in a bid to assess the impact of previous increases was the pause. You know, what what does it Americans say? Uh, Cumulative and lagged. Cumulative and lagged. Well, that's what the Canadians have done, isn't it? They've had a look at the cumulative and lagged effects. And they said, no, we need to go to 4.75%. Policymakers indicating that further hikes are on the way. Uh, The Bank of Canada is the second major global central bank to hike rates this week, after, of course, the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia on Tuesday. Treasury yield, they did rise. They weren't dramatic, to be fair. I mean, they did rise on the back of the move. Uh, Investors expecting the Bank of China's, BOC, Bank of Canada's hike big difference uh, will allow the Fed to maintain a hawkish outlook at next week's meeting I and mean, look at the yields though they are very similar to what you saw before the Bank of Canada moved to be fair but anyway the Treasury secretary and former Fed chair of course Janet Yellen spoke to CNBC an exclusive interview and outlined her view on the Fed's policy stance
1: I'm going to leave the Fed uh, to make its own decisions about what's necessary. Um, Consumer spending has continued to um, to to grow in um, a pretty robust way, but we 're also uh, seeing areas of the economy uh, that are slowing down, and this is a judgment that um, my former colleagues at the Fed are very capable of making um, i as I said I think what 's important is to tried to bring inflation down. It's a top priority.
0: Uh, Bring down inflation is the top priority. Just in case any of you forgot about the the, the playbook uh, from the late 70s and 80s where they forgot to tame inflation before they worried about growth, okay? This is what the current crop of policymakers, central bankers, don't want to fall into, isn't it? Well, Yellen also maintained her claim that a soft landing is possible for the US economy.
1: I see... A path to bringing down inflation while maintaining a strong labor market. And I think the data we've seen recently and over the last year suggest we're on a path with those characteristics. On the other hand, we are seeing some signs of easing pressures um, in the labor market, which may be important in terms of bringing inflation down. Um, the quit rate, um, has risen slightly um, job openings have declined somewhat, suggesting a bit less um, pressure in terms of firms adding to their workforce, but um, overall the labor market remains very strong and inflation has now come down about 4% from its peak and I think we'll continue to see uh, progress over the next next two years.
2: The Federal Reserve is expected to keep rates on hold at its June meeting, according to a Reuters poll of economists. One-third of respondents expect at least one more hike this year amid a resilient economy. Fed funds futures are pricing in a 66% chance of a pause at next week's meeting. That's down from 78% just a day ago, according to the CME Fed Watch.
0: Right, the U.S. trade deficit, though, hit its widest point in six months in April, spiking 23% uh, over the month to $74.6 billion dollars. Exports fell by $9.2 billion, whilst imports boosted by autos and motor supplies rose by $4.8 billion. The uh, consumer credit situation in the US, though, continues to grow, i.e. the credit grows, rising 5.7% to $23 billion in April and topping estimates. The figure was driven by an annual rise of 13.1% in, guess what, revolving credit. Um, There are so many things to discuss. Why don't you kick us off on our U.S. economy chat? I've got a few points to raise, but uh, why don't you uh, tell us what your thoughts are?
2: Well, my first thought this morning, I guess, on the back of the news um, from Bank of Canada is whether we should read too much into it and extrapolate what Bank of Canada has done to what the Fed might do next week. I mean, you look at the reasons why the the Bank of Canada raised interest rates again, and a lot of them are things that are happening in the U.S. You've got Sticky core inflation, resilient domestic demand, tight labor market, check, check, check. Um, But the market still believes the Fed is going to hold fire next week. So I think the market is telling us we shouldn't extrapolate too much. But I wonder if that is a complacent take.
0: I think on the data front, I'm not seeing benign Goldilocks. I'm seeing problems left, right and center. I, I, I see it everywhere I look. And yet what I don't see is a market which is saying that this is going to translate into some form of earnings recession. Of course, Mm -hmm. the market is a metaphor for the broader economy, but it's also made up of an index of individual stocks who are saying one by one, this is our situation, this is our outlook, this is what they said in the first and second quarters, and actually things don't look that bad at the moment. And I take that fully on board, and that is a great testament to the strength of these very, very strong U.S. and global companies. That said, going back to my initial points as well, you look at the trade data, uh, and you look at the US trade you can look at the US trade data in, in two ways one on as a as a metaphor for what's going on, on the global basis as we did with the broader Chinese data but you can also look at the plunge absolute plunge in trade between the US and China as well and one thing I've been pains to point out despite the political rhetoric uh, of the last 10, 15 years, doesn't matter what stripes of administration, whether you've had an Obama administration, whether you've had a Trump administration or the current Biden one as well, the fact is trade has continued to grow and it's been growing very well. But the problem is now trade between China and US, and I say a problem because I think it is an issue. You want the two biggest economies in the world trading heartily together. We're seeing big plunges. 13.4% drop in April in the trade between the U.S. and April. Not as bad as the 26% plunge we saw in March as well, but dropping at a double-digit pace since November 2022. And that would be fine if it's fulfilling some form of U.S. political manifesto, i.e. we're getting rid of the deficit. But as our headline figure showed, that is palpably not the case. So global trade is a problem. U.S.-China trade is a problem as well. The rates with the BOC, I think you've covered that beautifully, so I won't go into that as well. A little bit more on the credit side things as well again mortgage applications it's getting a lot tighter to get mortgages to get well obviously we've seen the student loan situation which is going to be harder auto loans a lot of them are being withdrawn and the credit requirements are becoming much tighter for people to get auto loans as well and as we saw revolving credit which is credit cards Mm -hmm. let's make no bones about it this is credit cards and again if we try one thing on this channel, we try and give you a little bit of education as well as tell you what's going on, on the daily basis. And part of the education has been, if you can afford not to, don't go near credit card debt. By all means, use credit cards, get your points, get your air miles, get your loyalty points. But it's the most expensive form of credit in terms of mainstream credit you can get, short of, you know, dare I say it, going to uh, other sources. I mean, you're talking 20, 25% as well. Yeah. Americans, if they're putting more money on revolving credit and credit cards, do not have a savings buffer. That is a fact. You don't use your savings buffer. You don't have your, what is it? They said $2.3 trillion of excess consumer savings in the States. Uh, because of COVID. That has been pared down aggressively. Figure in the region of 500 billion is seen as left. Yeah. For that. But that, a lot of that is based in the higher echelon of earners, higher echelon of households as well. Americans across the board are tapping credit cards. And that, for me, is a dangerous mm. sign as well. And
2: part of the reason that the consumer has held up so well when you look at the data, which is really worrying. One last thing I would throw into the mix from Janet Yellen yesterday, who was on Squawk Box Stateside. Um, she's keeping a close eye on commercial real estate. No surprise, obviously. This is something that's been well flagged as a risk. But in addition to all the factors you just listed, um, for the regional banks, she admitted this is a risk. And we're going to see um, an, in, an, an uptick in difficulties, restructurings, re- restructurings ahead. So mm. I think that could be a problematic area in the next six to 12 months.
0: I think you're spot on. But the, the, the problem is, and, and I know you're going to talk about the markets for us in a few moments' time, and a little bit of cracking on the, funnily enough, which is an amazing relationship, the NASDAQ cracking on the back of what the Bank of uh, Canada, if I say Bank of China one more time. Just hit me, OK? Feel free. HR aren't watching anyway. Uh, but, 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 and I'll probably deserve it. Uh, but, but the fact of the matter is, that that is fascinating. The Nasdaq fell in the back of, of what's going on at the, the Bank of Canada as well. But again, by and large, U.S. markets are doing really, really well. The S&P, it's not just those big names. I saw a great piece of copy um, from one of my correspondents saying, actually, there's a lot of breadth to the rally that we've seen in S&P stocks, not just the Nvidia's, not just the Microsoft's as well. So I think it's very interesting to see if and when we're gonna see a broader crack in, in U.S. valuations because at the moment, despite the price action on the NASDAQ yesterday, well, Giuliano will tell us now, it still looks pretty robust, Well, it does. If you look
2: at the year overall, the tech names in the U.S. have clearly been the outperformers. Is this the trade we saw yesterday, the beginning of a trend? Obviously, too early to say, but worth noting that the Nasdaq did underperform yesterday, pulled back about 1.3%. The S&P 500 dropped about 0.4%. The Dow Jones held up best. The Industrials average gained about 0.3% to close just under 34,000. Now, in terms of Treasury markets, we did see Treasuries slide after that unexpected increase in rates by the Bank of Canada. Um, Here you have yields higher across the treasury curve. You've got the two-year note over at the front end trading around 4.56%, the 10-year 3.78%, and the 30-year actually down on the session uh, about 3.94% or so at the moment. In terms of dollar crosses, here's how we're looking. You've got sterling and the euro trading higher versus the greenback. We're at 124.55, 107.12, 124.55, 107.12, respectively. Uh, dollar yen is trading weaker overnight. We're below that 140 level. Uh, and dollar yuan is trading about 0.1% higher to seven, just over 7.1. On to commodity markets, let's get a check on how we're trading this morning. You've got a little bit of a pullback in the price of oil. Brent and WTI both down by about a third of a percent, $76 and $72 a barrel respectively. Gold, the safe haven, is trading marginally higher this morning, up about 0.3%. We are below that 2,000 mark. Let's get a check on Asian markets, the active trade overnight. It is a downbeat session, the Nikkei 225 underperforming down uh, 1.1%. In mainland China, we've got the Shenzhen composite and the Shanghai composite both lower as well. And over in Korea, the Kospi is down 7.10%, so right across the board in Asia.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Right. Okay. Coming up on the show, we're going to be joined by the EY global chairman and CEO, Carmine as the firm gets ready to select the World Entrepreneur of the Year. Stay with us, we'll be back after the break. And Coinbase bites back at the SEC, targeting the chair there, Gary Gensler, and distancing itself from other litigation proceedings. More on the crypto crackdown when Squatbox returns. Uh, Welcome back. EY is holding its annual World Entrepreneur of the Year event with 49 finalists competing for the top prize. This year, the main focus is on AI. Well, I think it's uh, yeah, eight of the 49 finalists focused on AI, as well as healthcare and sustainability. I'm delighted to welcome back to the channel, Carmine DeCivio, who is a global chair and CEO of EY, joining uh, Juliana and myself to discuss. Carmine, tell us a little bit about the award and and I guess not only uh, what the contestants have to do to get to the final but what happens to a lot of these contestants and finalists afterwards do they more often not go on to have successful companies with longevity or or is it quite a high drop-off rate
3: steve it's great to be here juliana it's great to be here no this is a great event for us it's one of our signature events and as you said there are 49 entrepreneurs here from different countries around the world and i mean around the world And they're very focused, not only on AI, but on cancer prevention, on so many things that help the world all the way around. It's something that uh, we're very focused on, the companies that win, and they have to win in their regions and eventually in their countries to get to where I'm actually in Monaco to get, get to the big event here where we're going to announce our big winner tonight at a gala event. And these companies have all done really well. This is actually our World Entrepreneur of the Year we've been doing for over 20 years, and there are many companies that have gone on to become multi-billion dollar companies. Some of the companies here are relatively large already, some are smaller, um, but they're in fields that really help mankind and help the world, which is what's really exciting, whether that's sustainability, and yes, they are using AI uh, for a lot of what they're doing. If you think about AI, Uh, It's going to improve so many different sectors, and that's something that we're focused on at EY as well. But very, very happy about uh, what what we're doing here, and uh, the entrepreneurs, I spoke to a lot of them yesterday and last night, Uh, they couldn't be happier. Of course, they're all winners in their countries, but we will have one global winner tonight.
0: Carminers, you know better than anyone and anyone who's looking at backing these kind of companies, Angels, VC, PE, what have you, their failure rate is absolutely enormous. Now, I appreciate the fact that these contestants have relatively large companies in some cases as well, but a very, very high failure rate. Do you think at the moment with the current environment and the repricing of money that the failure rate actually is going to be at the top end uh, of recent levels because of the pressures that are building globally?
3: I actually, Steve, I actually think the opposite because money is much more restrictive than where it was let's say two or three years ago that frankly money is is chasing higher and higher end companies and so capital is much more scarce. Capital is going to companies that truly have the ability to scale, the ability to to really um, have a thriving business long term. So I actually think whoever is getting funding today uh, will have a better chance at succeeding long term.
2: Good morning, it's Giuliana here. Um, Let me pivot, if I can, uh, to Project Everest. This is obviously a huge deal for EY, the ambition to separate the businesses that was abandoned back in April. You were a big proponent of this plan. Talk to us about how you look back at it now that the company was forced to abandon it. You didn't have the support to go ahead. um, But at the time, you seemed like you were pretty steadfast in thinking this was the way forward for the business.
3: No, Juliana, thank you for asking that, and, and frankly, the strategic rationale on why we were doing Project Everest is still there today, uh, and that's why we embarked on it uh, over a year ago. Uh, we think the strategic rationale in terms of uh, really getting away from so many conflicts that our business has, those conflicts have not gone away. Uh, we could not execute it at this time. We are very complicated. We're a partnership global partnerships around the world. We're not a corporate. I get this question all the time. As chair and CEO, why couldn't you just get this done? Uh, It's very different in a global partnership, a series of partnerships where you have to really have consensus from people all around the world. And we couldn't quite get there this time. Uh, Maybe sometime in the future, the organization will get there uh, as well, as well as probably our competitors will get there. But we've learned a lot in going through the process. We're incorporating that into our business going forward. And you know the other factor here also is the general economy. When we started the project, the general economy, uh, the markets were at a different place than where, where they are now.
2: But as you alluded, a lot of the, the reasons, the rationale for this project are still there, the problems you were trying to address. So without this project coming to fruition, what is the plan? How are you going to achieve the objectives that you were aiming to achieve through the project?
3: Yeah, Juliana, that's a great question. Remember, the project was a long-term project, not only executing on the deal, but where is EY going to be five years from now, ten years from now? And that's generally true with our entire industry. Uh, In terms of shorter term, uh, we're going to announce well into double-digit growth. Our year-end is June 30th, uh, really serving our clients around the world. We just announced that we've promoted over 960 new partners around the world. So our business is actually thriving, and it's mostly thriving around tech. Uh, As you all know, companies around the world continue to transform themselves, uh, in particular uh, from a digital transformation perspective, but they're also transforming themselves from a structural perspective. And now with AI, AI is a big part of what we're going to be doing going forward. Uh, In fact, we look at AI from an EY perspective in three different areas. One, how do we help our clients implement and deal with AI? One, how do we transform our own business around AI? And then the third bucket really is around how do we help the world uh, with AI? You know, how do we help the world with regulation around AI? One of the things I've been talking to a lot of clients and a lot of people around the world is Um, I hope that governments and business can work together around how we monitor AI. Right now I would say a mistake would be, you know, regulation that we don't even understand what that is. Uh, I would encourage country leaders uh, to really look at and forming a commission of business people, government people, experts to really figure out how we should monitor AI as we go forward.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's going to affect all of us in every business, including the consultancy and auditing uh, domain. Carmine, you sounded very optimistic about the quality of the companies and their ability to attract capital in the current environment, the, the companies in your, uh, your competition, the World Entrepreneur of the Year event. But more broadly... You and I have seen a few cycles in our time, Juliana as well, but we come from a certain vintage you and I, dare I say it. Uh, And I can't believe the gravity-defying performance of broader equities at the moment. Are they in cuckoo land, Carmine? Because as far as I can see, the pressures are building left, right, and center, and I'm not sure that valuations are reflecting that.
3: Yeah, Steve, I think that's a fair question. I mean, I know the S&P generally has done pretty well, but but frankly, a lot of what's driving everything are the magnificent seven, or whatever the terms are that you all use, in terms of these tech companies. The valuations from them have been, just been skyrocketing, and maybe appropriately so. Uh, there's so much to be done, in particular around AI, and we really have to see how that shapes up. So that's something that uh, that obviously we have to look at. What's driving the market today, in my view, Steve, is is really around inflation the fears of inflation and frankly what central banks are going to do and while some central banks are still rising uh, still you know rising rates uh there is a question and there are comments around maybe that plateauing later in the summer uh and if that's the case i do think uh, equity valuations are probably in the right place
0: carmine i was um, talking earlier on the show about uh, finally we're seeing something that i don't think we necessarily want to see and that is a, a very big decline since november last year Double-digit clients on a monthly basis in the amount of trade between China and the US, the the two superpowers economically, globally as well. Various administrations have talked about lessening reliance and localization and reshoring for for decades. But I think this is more about actually uh, perhaps a frostier relationship rather than just thinking about necessarily where is the best place to Place your supply chain as well. How worried are you about the situation, A, with the Chinese economy, and B, relations with China and the West?
3: You know, Steve, I'm actually very worried. Uh, As business people and as a CEO, uh, we are trying to do what we can in terms of improving relationships with China. As you all know, uh, several CEOs traveled to China, uh, I think it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, to really see what they can do to help here. Um, I think it's really important that there's robust trade between the U.S. and China, frankly between the West and China. But all that being said, uh, and I might have mentioned this before on this program, we are seeing the opposite. Uh, we are seeing companies really isolate their China operations. You've seen a big investment fund pretty much say that they're selling off their China operation. And that continues. The, the motto that everyone goes by right now is what's made in China, sold in China. So it's almost a closed loop within China. Uh, it's, it's an issue right now, and frankly, it's something that, uh, that I'm very, very concerned about going forward.
0: Oh, I know I always enjoy speaking to you, but it would be remiss of me to ask uh, to not ask, uh, what's your personal future in the short to medium term? Uh, how long do you think you're going to maintain your current position?
3: Well, that's a great question, Steve. Um, that's a fair question. So, I, uh, um, you know, as you know, my mandatory, our mandatory retirement age was 60, and that's something that, uh, that uh, we... Um, we abide by EDI, but frankly, right now, what we're working on at EY is to make sure that we stabilise the company, make sure that we serve our clients and serve our people.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
1: Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cupmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.